0: Chapter 20 this morning. Hey, let's do the smart thing, have a word of prayer here before we dig into this and see what God has to say. Lord, good to be here, good to learn of you, to understand these passages, but then apply them, Lord, in all that we say and all that we do. Thank you for the time of worship this morning, thank you for the time of fellowship, and I pray that right here, right now, we can let go of everything and just learn of you in your name, amen. Amen. I've always liked this passage in Acts chapter 20. We're going to start in verse 17. We're going to go to the end of the chapter. And in fact, I'm going to read it all straight through first, and we're going to come back and break it down. As we were listening to the messages uh, coming home from Mexico, I was listening to Rich teach, and we listened to Renee teach, and very selfishly in my flesh, I was like, oh, don't get to verse 17, because I want to to teach verse 17. (laughs) So I was glad that uh, tweets stopped at verse 16, and then Rich did a topical last week. I was like, oh, I'm happy. Um, I love this passage. Absolutely love this passage. It's always been very relatable to me. It's Paul teaching and speaking to the leadership of the church. And it's, if you will, this is kind of the first pastor's conference, if you want to look at it from that perspective. But it is applicable to all of us. Uh, Dawn and I, every October, go to a pastor's conference. It's over in uh, Hartford City, Indiana. It's a few hours away, and we just love it. We look forward to it. It's, it's a few days of a lot of activity, a lot of driving, and there's a lot of teaching, but he just, it's such a blessing, absolutely a blessing, and we look forward to it, and we love it, and I always come out of there feeling refreshed and encouraged, and I see this here with Paul's message. There's some tough stuff in this message. It ends kind of sad. They know they're not going to see Paul again, but yet there's so much truth and application with this that we all can take and apply. So I want you to keep looking at this as this first pastor's conference, and Paul's emphasis is going to be on God's word and prayer. It is not about how to entertain the body of Christ. It's not about how to accommodate the body of Christ. I see a lot in churches today, a focus on what can we do to keep the people entertained? What can we do to get them to come back? What can we do to make you feel happy and whatever here? I tell you, you're here this morning, and I appreciate that so much, and I want you to get God's word, have a time of prayer, and I want you to go home and tell people about Jesus Christ. That's what we're here for. And so, therefore, I love the straightforwardness of this, of we're here to grow in Christ, apply it, and then let's go live it. So, with that being said, we're going to read this together. It's a short little message. It actually reads quick, and then we're going to come back and break this down. So, if you will, verse 17, Acts 20, it says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that would happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men, For I have not shunned, declared to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the ship. Quite the message, quite the emotional ending, knowing they're not going to see Paul again. He'd been there for three years. As far as we can tell in the Bible, this is the longest Paul stayed in one spot. He grew really attached to this group. This is the group that he wrote the book of Ephesians to, and if you go read Ephesians, you're going to see it's different than a lot of the other epistles. Corinthians, he's correcting things. Galatians, he's rebuking them. But when he writes to Ephesians, he's just like, Guys, just remember, God loves you. Just remember, I love you. And, and it's just a different type of book. You see that relationship that he's built with them for three years. There's a lot of sadness with this. But now we need to go back and actually break this down. How do we apply this? I want you to look at verse 18. You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you. That word lived is very important. Guys, we've got to live it. It's not just talk about it, it's not just underline scriptures, it's not memorize scriptures, it's not read it, it's not join small groups. It's actually going out and living it, and all that we do and say. One of the messages we were listening to, Rich made a comment about what can you be good at only doing for one hour a week on a Sunday. That really hit me, I was chewing on that on the way home. This idea that if we really just minimize our walk with Christ down to an hour on a Sunday morning... How are we going to be, ever be good about going deeper in Christ? I mean, imagine one of your kids came to you or somebody came to you and said, they have a dream of being, I don't know, a, a concert pianist. Oh, you to, oh you're want to? you going to have to practice a lot. I know. I am going to practice a lot. I'm going to practice one hour every Sunday. How good do you think you're going to get? And we've got to be honest, I'm, I'm not going to practice one hour every Sunday because my kids are going to get sick. There's going to be stuff I need to do. We're going to be going and doing this. It's really going to come down to about two hours a month, but I'm going to get really good at it. No, you're not. And if we really just whittle down a Christian experience of knowing who Jesus Christ is to just coming to church and going to church, we're never going to have any depth in our walk in relationship with Christ. I'm not trying to pick on anybody for coming to church. I'm glad you're here, and I love it. But this is just one point in your entire walk with Christ. It really is. And the truth is we're supposed to live this on a day-in, day-out basis to go out and really say this is what it is. I remember one time doing a teaching on church, and I had somebody come up to me afterwards and said, Why are you pushing the church thing? And I said, I'm not trying to push the church thing. Salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. But here's the deal. I said, some of the people I know, because they're open with me and they're honest with me, the only time they're in the word, the only time they're in prayer, and the only time they're worshiping is when they're at church. So therefore, if they're not showing up for a couple Sundays, I just know they went two, three weeks without any type of depth in the Lord in any way whatsoever. And I don't want to see anybody go that long that way. There is hopefully a desire to live it. Not just talk about it, mark it, underline it, study it. But do we actually go out and live it? Now, the problem is you hear the word live it. What does live it mean? Well, he explains what living it means in verse 19. There's three things. You're supposed to serve the Lord with humility through tears and trials. That's what it means to live the life. Verse 18, you need to serve. You've got to go out there and serve who? Verse eight, 19, you serve the Lord. The Lord. Not people, the Lord. If you serve people, then you're putting their whims above the Lord. You've got to serve the Lord, and as you serve the Lord, you have a love for people to go out and minister to them. John Corson, a pastor I respect a lot and I like a lot, he said this about the idea of serving the Lord. He said, how was Paul able to continue in ministry even when people threw rocks at him? By serving the Lord rather than serving people. If you're in ministry to serve people, you might last for a year or 10 or 15, but you'll burn out eventually because oftentimes, like Paul, all you receive from those you serve will be stones and beatings. If, however, you are in ministry not to serve people or to satisfy some innate need within you, but to serve the Lord because of what he did for you, you will endure through the good times and the bad times, through the spring, summer, fall, and winter seasons of your life. Because you're doing it for the Lord, not for people. They taught us at pastor's conference years ago that if you're in the ministry because of the warm, fuzzy feeling it gives you, you're going to be in trouble because you're doing it because of what the Lord did. And sometimes when you're out there serving the Lord, it will not be accepted, it will not be appreciated, it will not be respected. Remember, Jesus hung on the cross and was not appreciated, respected, or loved. He set the example, and we need to remember we're out there serving. Now, it's not just ministry, folks. It's in whatever aspect of your life. A lot of times when I'm doing marriage counseling, i got the couple comes in, and she says, he doesn't love me. He doesn't treat me nice. And then he comes back and says, well, she says this, she does that. And what happens is they're just focused on themselves rather than serving. Serving each other, serving people through the Lord to stop and say, Lord, I'm here to love my wife as Christ loved the church. Not because she's earned it or deserved it, because that's what you told me to do in Ephesians 5. I'm here to respect my husband and honor and submit unto it, not because he's earned it or deserved it, but because that's what you said to do. Because I serve the Lord, not people. And how do I serve? According to verse 19, with humility. That's a hard one. Because there's this innate part of us that always wants to elevate ourselves. And the Bible's constantly telling us to die to ourselves, to disappear. Humility is not thinking less of yourself like some type of self-depreciation, oh, I'm awful, I'm horrible. No, you're more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus. You have inheritance in heaven. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. You're a son of God, so quit putting yourself down. Humility is thinking of others more than you think of yourself. Humility is I am constantly thinking of others so much I don't even think about myself anymore. If you're constantly thinking about yourself, you're going to notice every time that you're not appreciated and you're not respected and you're not loved. But if you're constantly serving and ministering the Lord by loving other people, you forget that because there's a humility. I'm thinking more of others than I think of myself, and so I just want to go out there and serve. Jesus set the example of this. In Philippians 2, he left heaven, came down to earth, the Bible says, in the form of a servant. What an example for us just to serve. But can we go out there and serve with humility, realizing we may not be appreciated, love, but I'm doing it just for the Lord? Think back to John 13. Jesus went out and washed feet. Washed feet. Have you ever been part of a a foot washing? It's quite interesting. We were getting ready to leave a few weeks ago for the trip, and here it is, the Thursday. There's some stress. Trying to make sure you got all your I's dotted, T's crossed. It's starting to sink in while we're leaving for three weeks. We're driving 2,200 miles one way. Lord, are you sure? Because are you sure it's not too late to close the border, God? It's not. We're getting a little tense, getting a little frustrated. So we stopped that afternoon, went and read John 13 about Jesus washing feet, and we washed each other's feet before we left. And we got down on our knees and put their feet in the water. And as we washed their feet, we looked at them and said, this is what I appreciate about you. This is what I love about you. This is what I'm praying for. And it's awkward to wash somebody else's feet. But when they come and wash your feet, it's just as awkward. And when you stop and you think of here's the God of the universe that got down on his hands and feet and went to each of those disciples. And I don't want to add to the Bible, but I just envision him looking at them in the eye. Going through and saying, you know, Peter, I, we know the conversation he had with Peter, but John, you know, what is this? Just talking and washing their feet. Teaching you humility. Quit putting yourself down and just think more about other people. That's what it is. That's what humility is. And as you do this, what's, what's going to happen in verse 19? There's going to be tears and trials. like to skip that part of it, but you can't. Guys, your health's going to go bad one time. Somebody's going to let you down. Somebody's going to disappoint you. Somebody's going to make you angry. It is inevitable that it's going to happen. I know that every Christian wants to get saved, live a godly life, live purely for the Lord, be crazy for Jesus, and then in your mid-80s die in your sleep and feel no pain. That's what we all want. It doesn't work that way. The Lord sometimes says the trials and tears of that diagnosis that you didn't want means you get to go witness to that nurse, and that nurse is now going to go home, and now she's going to witness to her family, and there's going to be a tidal wave of the gospel, and heaven's going to rejoice. Okay, but can't heaven rejoice through somebody else's trials and tears? Trials and tears are part of it. John sixteen thirty three. Jesus said, "In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You will have tribulation. Stay in Acts. Back up just a few chapters to Acts fourteen, please. Acts fourteen. Let's talk about the tears and the trials." If you look in Acts 14, if you just remind yourself of what happened. Paul is giving this great gospel message. The town is not responding to it. They don't like it. So verse 19 of Acts 14. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. Having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went to the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Durba. So they come. They stone him probably to death. It's kind of what it looks like if you go study out Corinthians. And they leave. They go to Durba. I'd leave too. But look at verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconia, and Anak. They went back to the place where they tried to kill him. And look what he says, verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. That's the guy that just went and got stoned possibly to death. And he comes back and says, guys, we got to go out there and do it. There's a term I like to use. I call it cotton candy Christianity. It sure tastes good. It's a lot of fun. There's no nutritious value to it in any way whatsoever. Part of going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and I'm not trying to elevate that, but this is just what I think is fruitful, you get to verses about tears and trials. Some of you here this morning are in tears going through a trial. And you're thinking, what is going on? I just want to remind you that God is good and does good. Please remember, his definition of good is different than our definition of good. Maybe the good that will come out of it is you will go deeper in your walk with Christ. Maybe the good that will come out of it, your kids will see you become that man or woman of God. Maybe the good is you will be a light and a witness to someone. Or maybe the good is you will come out with a scar, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And you may say, what is the point of this scar, Lord? And then years down the road, you run into somebody who's gone through the same trial. And you can say, listen, I've been there. I have been there. I've been through what you have been, and let me tell you what the Lord did to get me through it. But Paul is honest in verse 19. You serve the Lord with humility through tears and trials. That is how you live the life of what it really means. What else do we see in verse 20? You don't hold back. I kept back nothing that was helpful, proclaimed it to you, taught you publicly, and from house to house. Hold nothing back. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. In verse 20, it says this I never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear. That's a hard one. Never shrank back from telling what you needed to hear. Do we love people enough to speak truth to them? Do we love them enough in verse 20 to hold nothing back and proclaim it? It's difficult. I mean, it sounds easy. But yet, when you see a loved one and somebody you've known for years going backwards instead of forwards in our walk, do we love them enough to go put our hand on their shoulder and say, I love you, man, but this is going to destroy you. Now, what I normally hear is, I can't do that. We've been friends for so long. And what we're really saying is, I'm putting my friendship above your spiritual growth. I would rather see you go backwards spiritually and keep our friendship rather than hurt our friendship and be honest and loving with you. The more I read through Proverbs, the more I see true love is to go to someone and say, I love you enough to tell you I'm concerned about you. And I don't think this is going to spiritually bless you. And I see in verse 20, I kept nothing back but proclaimed it. And how did I do it in verse 20? From house to house. House to house. House to house is this, it's personal. It's personal. We, we live in this society where we're like very cut and dry. We're going to get together at 10. We're going to be done at 11. We will give each other a side hug, say God bless, and then go home. And that is our deep relationship we have with each other. I see Paul in verse 20 saying, I'm going to go spend the evening with you and look you in the eye across your dining room table. We're going to talk about what Jesus is doing in my life and your life. This is something the Lord has been working on me for for a while here. The idea of what does it really look like to go out and live it, that relationship of knowing people, not the cut-dried Christianity. If we really are the brothers and sisters in the Lord, there needs to be, for lack of a better word, some gooey relationship going on here a little bit because we're really not going to be the body of Christ seeing each other for a few minutes every couple weeks. There's a depth to that. You know, this is part of the reason why we started up the uh, home fellowships because of verse 20 Paul going house to house I tell you I have learned don't get me wrong love Wednesdays love Sundays get a chance to minister to a lot of people at once but the real growth happens in someone's living room the real growth happens when you share a meal together Dawn used to pick on me because I would always go out and just um, want to eat with people and I would say to her this is what Jesus did he'd go out and eat with people and she never liked it you know Dawn's got a hard head you know she loves the Lord, but she's still growing. And so what happened is she heard this teaching now from this guy. And it was this idea of the Son of Man came. And it's mentioned three times. What did the Son of Man come? The Son of Man came to seek what was lost. The Son of Man came, you know, to, to love those that are lost. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And the name of the message was like ministry through meals. And it's, you can really grow with somebody when you sit down and eat with them. And so she heard this message, and like, this is amazing. This is what we're supposed to be doing. It's like, I've been telling you this for 22 years. So all of a sudden, this guy from a different church who happens to have a British accent that you think is cool, now you listen to him, I'm not bitter in any way whatsoever. So now, she's like, we need to eat with people. I know. The ministry of meals. There's something about sitting. And if you look at it from a cultural standpoint... This American culture is one of the few cultures in the world that really does not push the idea of meals. You know, we've done outreach with people from Sudan, and it's a meal. You sit down, and you just eat out of the same stuff. We have some Nepali friends that you go sit with them, and it's like it's ours, and you share. You know, it's it's a different culture for us. So we're very used to very cut and dry whatever, and I see Paul saying, no. We're going to really spend some time together. And I'm going to be honest about what the Lord's doing in my life. You're going to be honest about what the Lord's doing in your life. I'm going to share what God's doing. You're going to share what God's doing. We're going to encourage one another. We're going to pray with one another. And this is what we're going to do. That's where the fruit happens. Don't get me wrong. There's fruit here this morning because God is good and faithful. But that really one-on-one, man, that's where you really just start to see it. So you see Paul saying, I don't hold back. I, I live my life. I'm giving you my life as well, too. And what am I going to tell everybody? Verse 21. Repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just talk about what Jesus is doing. Fellowship is great. But the definition of fellowship that we usually think of is Christians that get together and talk about sports and weather. I'm glad we get together. But fellowship is, what's the Lord doing in your life? What's the Lord doing in my life? How can I pray for you? How can you pray for me? Hey, did you hear what God did? That's the fellowship. What's the Lord doing and moving? And it always goes back to that idea of verse 21. God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it is. So if we could just stop right there, verse 21. Man, I love it. We'll, we'll, we'll even accept the tears and trials part. But I want to live the life, I want to serve, serve with humility okay, tears and trials, I can accept that, but we're going to encourage one another, we're going to be one with one another, house to house, we're going to talk about Jesus, let's just end right there. There's more, though. Verse 22, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Verse 23, The Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. That's tough. Paul knew what was coming, and it was still God's will for his life. Safest place to be is God's will. Wherever that may be, the safest place to be is God's will. When we were coming back uh, from Mexico, I'm a weather guy, and I'm always watching the weather. And when driving through uh, Southern California into Arizona and to Mexico, the weather's a little funky as you get into Texas as well. So, I'm watching the weather reports, and they're talking dust storms, sustained winds over 20 miles an hour, wind gusts. Now, if I'm on my little Kia, the wind just picks up my Kia and just floats it. You know what I mean? It's just like that. We're in our 12 passenger van, it's a lot of van right there, and that's a lot of wind. And so here we are, and we were in uh, Santa Rosa, New Mexico, and the wind the next day was supposed to be pretty rough, and I was in contact with some of you, and you know I was praying, and I was asking you guys, hey, guys, keep the wind in prayer, because it's, it's a different ballgame out there. So as we're in Santa Rosa, New Mexico, getting ready to leave, I can't sleep. I wake up. I'm scared. This is something I'm not used to. This is what I'm not used to. So I, what do I do? It's like, we're just going to try this. We're going to get everybody up. So I woke everybody up, and we left the hotel before 5 a.m., God bless my kids and my wife. No one argued. No one, no one fought. I mean, we drugged our kids with Dramamine. They didn't even know what was going on. <laughs> don't, don't tell anybody that. Um, and as we're driving, the worst winds were supposed to be near Amarillo, Texas. And so as we're driving, and there's no way to dodge it. I'm looking at the weather. It's just going to go on and on and on. So we get to Amarillo, and I'm checking the wind speed. And I think the highest we had was like 21 mile an hour, which, you know, it's like, okay, that's not awful. But it just affects everything. But as I'm driving through Texas, I'm thinking, wait a second, Lord. This is what you called us to do. I firmly believe that. So therefore, the safest place for me to be is on this road right now, going 75 mile an hour in this wind, because this is exactly where you've called me to be. The safest place to be is God's will. And it's not an original thought. The first person I heard talk about was Corey Ten Boom. And if you've ever studied out Cory Ten Boom, she went through the Holocaust. And so she's talking about the safest place to be is God's will. And if this is God's will for the Holocaust, that's that's crazy. But the safest place for Paul to be is, I guess I'm going to Jerusalem to be bound in chains because that's what the Lord wants. Wow. We always try to make ourselves be as safe, as comfortable as possible. And sometimes the Lord says, you don't get it. I want you to go through the storm because that's the safest place for you to be. Dawn knew I was worked up a little bit about the weather, so she kept giving me these scriptures about Jesus rebuking the wind and the storms. The wind was boisterous, Peter walking on the water, Peter sinking them in the boat. And then you realize as you go back and read those messages that, that the Lord gave, he allowed them, dare I say, wanted them to go through the storm to teach them. The safest place to be is God's will. Paul, don't do this, you don't want to be bound. No. This is what God wants. And how do I know this? How can I do this? Because of verse 24. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 24. My life means nothing. New Living Translation says it like this. My life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Do you not realize we can live our entire life down here on earth, be a good husband, be a good wife, raise good kids, live in a good community, be a good community servant, just be good all around, and our life can still be a complete failure unless we really realize the eternity of Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying in verse 25, my life means nothing to me. This is a concept of dying he comes in Romans 6 and goes even further. He says, listen, you got to die to yourself. you got to consider yourself just a dead man. And he goes in Romans 6 and says, guess what? Dead men can't be tempted. So therefore, when you're tempted by evil and tempted by sin, he says, remind yourself, you're dead. He goes on in Galatians and says, listen, I crucify myself. I'm dying every day. I don't even exist. Jesus takes it even a step further in the Gospels and says, if you really want to live for me, you've got to die first. And when you die, you really realize what it means to live. Because when you die, you realize, wait a second. It doesn't matter what happens on this earth. Because it's just this earth. This isn't my home. My home is in heaven. And the only thing that matters is verse 24. I don't count my life dear to myself. I want to finish my race with joy. And I'm going to go tell people about Jesus Christ. See, the problem is you hear the teaching of dying and it sounds so just depressing and discouraging. I get up and I just die. Yeah. And when you finally die to this world and to your passions and your wants and desires, you are free to live because there's nothing holding you here. Because it's like, wait a second, I don't need to get caught up in that. I'm dead to it. I don't need to get caught up in that. I'm dead to it. The only thing that matters are souls saved. This is a long process. It is called a sanctification process. The Bible talks about when you get saved, you're sanctified. It's an event where you're set apart. But then they also teach about a sanctification process where you're becoming more and more like Jesus. And so therefore you reach a point where you realize, I'm dying to this. I don't know if you guys remember uh, Doris Spangler that used to worship out with us here before she moved up to Michigan. One time Howard was in the hospital and went up to visit Howard and brought Doris back to Deschler. And here we are just talking. I think at the time she was about 91 or something. And we were just talking about life and worries, fears, anxieties, whatever. And she looked at me and she goes, Pastor, she goes, I have learned to not worry. It doesn't do any good. After 90 years, I have learned not to worry. It doesn't do any good. It's like, wow. Can't it be amazing to reach that point of just like Paul in verse 24? I'm dead. I don't count my life dear to me. So when that person at work insults me, yeah, it doesn't matter. When I didn't get the raise, I got looked over. I'm not appreciated. That's okay. I'm just going to go wash feed. I didn't get what I wanted. That's okay. My home's in heaven. I have an inheritance. Because I've died to all of this. And once you die, you can live. And that's what the amazing thing about this is. So now he reminds him in verse 25, he's not going to see them again. And then he sums up a couple points in 26 and 27, which are really deep. The first one, I am innocent of the blood of all men. In verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Oh, those are two amazing statements. Wouldn't that be an amazing goal to say? Verse 26, I am innocent of the blood of all men. A lot of different takes on this. I believe in the context of what we're talking about in the gospel of Jesus Christ, I believe it's this. Paul is saying that when we're given an opportunity to witness and to represent Jesus Christ, he did it every time. I wish I could say that. But there's times where you get nervous. There's times where you don't say as much. There's times you back down and you realize, Lord, I allowed a life situation to keep my tongue from preaching truth. Lord, forgive me of that. I remember the first time it happened. Uh, I got saved. And when you first get saved, there's just this boldness. They're going to tell everybody about Christ. And then after a couple years of walking with the Lord, we think we grow up, we think we mature, we think we have more wisdom. And really what it comes down to is, I think sometimes we just kind of level out in our walk. And so we were living in McClure. Don and I just got married, and there was a couple guys at the recycling place in McClure and went over dropped off my recycling, and I saw them just sitting there, and I really felt like the Lord said, go talk to them. I, no, I'm just here to drop recycling off. I don't know who they are. I don't know what's going on. Went back to the apartment, sat there, and I just thought, why? Why didn't you? And so it's like, okay, Lord, give me another chance. If you give me another chance, I'll do it. And the Lord said, there is another chance. They're still there. Just go back. So I went around the house, looked for whatever recycling I missed the first time to purposely go back, went back, and got a chance to talk to them. And Lord worked it out. One of them ended up getting saved. And it was just, okay, Lord, I want to be innocent in the blood of all men. Does that mean that every conversation I have with somebody, it's like, hey, my name is James. Do you know Jesus? No, that's not what I do. But every conversation I have with somebody, I am praying with them, Lord, open a door. Open door. Every conversation, it's a purposeful conversation. Every waitress, every, every uh, cashier person at Walmart, everyone, I am talking to them. And as I talk to them, hey, how's your day going? Whatever. I'm just waiting for the Lord to open a door. When the Lord opens a door, I'm just saying, okay, time to plant a seed. Somebody mentions our boys. Oh, you got five boys. Yes, we are very blessed by the Lord. The Lord has given us five boys. We're going to give God the glory. And hopefully it starts up a conversation. Just waiting for that. Because I want to make sure that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And the next one, in verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Once again, I'm not pushing this, but I'm telling you for me and for this church, the verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, study through the Bible, I think is the best way to go. I know there's a lot of churches that don't do that, and that's between them and the Lord, but for us in verse 27, this is how you get the whole counsel of God. There are certain passages that are not fun to teach on, but when you go through them, you got to teach on them. And it gives you the whole context Of everything, That's why I love it. And Paul's saying in verse 27, he goes, I gave you the whole counsel. I preached what I was called to preach, and I preached all that I was told to preach. And I want to be able to say that same thing as well. Now he gets to his final thoughts in verse 28, and I think verse 28 is a wonderful verse for anybody in ministry, especially pastors. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Take heed to yourselves. There's a personal part of this. James 3 says, Not many of you become teachers. You'll receive a stricter judgment. There's a personal walk that I need to be backing up of how I live, not just faking it on a Sunday morning. And also I need to make sure as the shepherd or the overseer. Now people see that word overseer and they think it's some type of dictatorship. Overseer just means you oversee it. You oversee the different ministries that are going on. In verse 28, you shepherd the church. It's God's church. He purchased it with his own blood. I see so many churches and pastors acting like tomcats marking their territory, and it's awful. This God's church, verse 28. Whoever shows up let's love, whoever shows up, let's teach him. He purchased with his own blood. I'm just called to shepherd it. Now, what does it mean? Some translations, King James says this, New Living Translation says this, it says, feed and shepherd, and I like that because it shows two elements. There's supposed to be a time of feeding. This is a time of feeding right now. We're giving you God's word, and we try to give you opportunities throughout the week. Small group studies, small group Bible studies, Wednesday nights where you can be fed. We'll get you devotions. We'll get you a Bible. We want to feed you, but we also want to shepherd. Now, growing up, we grew up with sheep. And I've said many times before, the cutest baby animal is a lamb. I, just, I don't think there's anything cuter than a baby lamb. The problem is baby lambs grow up to become sheep. And I say this, and don't get upset at me, sheep are dumb. So what God is saying to you as you read through the Gospels where he calls you his sheep, he's saying you're cute but dumb. Just remember that, okay? But he still loves you. And I know as a sheep, I'm cute and dumb. I know looking out across you guys, you're cute and dumb. It's a compliment, but it's also a realization. There needs to be a shepherd. And this is why a couple points. You've got to be careful of solo Christianity. It says in the book of Isaiah, Woe to him who warms himself by the fire alone. I see it a lot where people kind of go their own route. They're not a fan of the church thing. They're not a fan of this, not a fan of that. They're just going to have church at home by themselves. You're going to stunt your spiritual growth really quick right That, Really quick. Yeah, I know there's many reasons not to go to church, and the key reason not to go to church is because there's other Christians. I get that. that's not a joke. It's difficult being around the body of Christ. That's why you see the 12 disciples arguing consistently. You see in the book of Acts, people arguing. You see it. We have to learn how to love each other and work through each other. If we love Jesus, we can hopefully love the people that Jesus loves. I am called to feed and I'm also called to shepherd. Now I'm going to tell you what I look at the word "shepherd" means. Shepherd" to me does not mean dictatorship. This is something I've had to learn in the 20 years I've been out here as a pastor. Shepherd means I oversee, and my primary responsibility is to make sure you guys are fed spiritually, taken care of spiritually, and to love you. But that also means there's going to be other people that God has given a vision of them wanting to do something. And when they come and they say, hey, James, we got this idea, we got this vision. Okay, tell me about it. As long as it's not unbiblical, as long as it's not satanic, and it's pointing people towards Jesus, go with it. I'm going to let you go and do the vision that God has given you. You I'll meet with you and I'll pray with you, but if God has given you that heart, then you go with it. I don't want to be the person that has to say, okay, well, nope, that wasn't my idea. There's a lot of ideas that have come up here over the years, and I think I would never have come up with that. God bless it. Amen. Let's just go see souls get saved. And the way I look at it is, once again, as long as it's not unbiblical, as long as it's not satanic, and it's pointing people towards Jesus, let's do it. That's the way the body of Christ is supposed to work. And then I have a responsibility to help oversee and shepherd. And we have other people that will meet and pray and make sure the track is going straight forward there. But the way this church is supposed to work is to do that. So with that being said, now it's a quick time to to plug this. You guys know Richard's retiring here in just a couple weeks at the end of May. You know, we started announcing this, I think, last summer when we started going through the book of Acts. And we said, you know what? It kind of feels like the Lord could do one of two things. He's either going to raise somebody up to uh, replace Richard, or if not, then he's going to raise the body of Christ up, because it says in Ephesians, we're supposed to equip the saints for the ministry of the church. Well, we were praying about it. It really never felt like the Lord was raising somebody up. There's a lot of good guys, but just not that person that felt led to really come in and go into full-time ministry. So next Sunday, we're going to meet after the 8.30 at about 9.30 back in room six, and we're going to also meet after the 10 back in room six, and Richard and me are going to sit down, and if anybody feels led to get more involved in ministry, we're going to stop and say, hey, this is what Richard does throughout the week. Now, who feels we'll have to take care of some of these responsibilities? Because this is what the Bible says. Equip the saints. You guys have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, that means he has gifted you and empowered you to go into ministry. Please remember the word ministry just means to serve. You're all in the ministry. So what does that look like? And we said if the Lord doesn't raise up somebody, then the resources that were allocated to rich can now really be used to go see the gospel spread in ways that we can't imagine. And that's the season we're going to go into. So that means there's going to be lots of hospital visits. There's going to be lots of ministry opportunities. And you know what? Maybe there's a hospital visit where somebody else who has the gift of mercy goes and represents Jesus Christ. They go pray with the people before the surgery. It's still the same God. It's still the same Holy Spirit. But what a neat opportunity to be able to say, I want to go love the body of Christ that God purchased with his own blood, in verse 28, to feed and shepherd the church. What a beautiful calling that is. What else do we have then? Now he warns them, hey shepherds, be careful, verse 29. People are gonna attack from the outside, and verse 30, people are gonna attack from the inside. Gotta be careful. Now I'll be honest, in the years I've been doing this, it's easier to see the outside attacks. Those are kind of obvious. And there's lots of examples of what it looks like in verse 29 where savage wolves come and try to attack. It, there's, there's lots of stories. I'll just share one. I got a call from a guy years ago. He was from Georgia. And he called me up and said he was an apostle. And God had given him northwest Ohio. And he wanted to come and use harvest as his command center, if you will, and come up here and take northwest Ohio for the Lord. It's like, okay, this is sounding quite interesting. Well, what do you envision with coming up and using us as a command post and taking Northwest Ohio for the Lord? Well, you know, I'd like to come share the vision with the church, and, okay, and if there's, you guys want to take up some collections or something like that to support me, uh, the last group I did this to, they were so blessed by what I did, they went out and bought me a new car. Okay, well, I don't think God's calling you from Georgia to Northwest Ohio to use us as a command post to get a new car. That one was kind of obvious. The ones that are a little more difficult is verse 30 where it says, among yourselves. Sometimes they come in and they sound good. They look good for a while. And time reveals that. I wish I could tell you that verse 30, we've never been fooled. There's been times where we've been fooled and we've called it too late. and We've stopped and said, okay, Lord, help us to learn the next time. And we talk about now there's red flags. And I used to kick myself. It's like, oh, Lord, why didn't I see that? And I started realizing Judas hung out with those disciples for three years, and they never knew Judas was Judas. In fact, think about that. When Jesus said, the one I dip the bread into and give to, this is the one that will betray me. So he dips the bread, gives it to Judas. And what do the other 11 do? Is it me? Is it me? They never think it's Judas. And Judas then leaves, and they say, oh, Judas must be just going to buy some more supplies. That's how elevated they had Judas. Judas was the treasurer of the group. And you've got to be careful of treasurers, right, Rose? I mean, you've got to be careful of treasurers. I'm not making eye contact with her, but you've got to be careful. Point is, Judas was respected, elevated. We've got to be careful. And like, okay, Lord, we've got to be prayed up and ready because sometimes when these uh, new ones come in, they sound too good to be true. Maybe they are. This is something we've learned over the years. And Paul's warned us, listen, they'll attack from the outside and they'll attack from the inside. So therefore, verse 31, therefore, watch. Watch. I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears for three years. Watch. We're running out of time. I can't take you there, so I'm just going to give you the reference. There's a great verse. It's Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 11. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 11. And God is speaking to Ezekiel and said, I've called you to be a watchman. And you're walking the wall and you're watching. And as a watchman, you have a responsibility. Your responsibility is to warn people when you see something. And if you see something and don't warn it, Ezekiel, he goes, you're the one in trouble. But if you see something and warn people and they choose to ignore your warning, then they're the ones in trouble. And we have to remember, as the body of Christ, we're called to be watchmen. Now, please note, watchmen are not the Holy Spirit. It's not our job to point out every sin, flaw, and fault. Our job is to point people back towards Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel and to be able to say, listen, I love you, I see what's going on, and according to the Bible, you're going to run into problems with this, and I don't want you to do that. Or, you know what, according to the Bible, your idea is really not biblical. As the watchman, we need to see this. And that's what he's saying in verse 31. Watch, remember, warn, and love. Speak the truth in love. Now he does his final thoughts. He reminds them in verse 32 that they're supposed to build each other up in the word, in the word, stress the word, and that they have an inheritance. An inheritance. You have an inheritance in heaven. You have a home waiting in heaven. You have salvation. You have everything you could need. We've got to be careful then that we're not doing things down here on earth and we're supposed to be focused on heaven. Dawn's reading this really neat book and it's got a lot of neat points about possessions and money, etc., and one of the things is it says we have this tendency as Americans that when we get money, we buy something new. And when we buy something new because we have disposable income, we don't know what to do with it, it's just one more thing to store, one more thing that's going to break, one more thing to repair, one more thing to be worried about because we've got to make sure it's safe and careful. And this guy says, how about we quit investing in things down here and just keep sending it on? Because we have an inheritance in heaven. That's where it's at. That's where the goal is. And with that inheritance, he reminds us, verse 33, I've coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. I run into a lot of non-believers when you mention church to them. They always mention the only thing they want is my money. And I wish you could say that's not true. But we all know a lot of churches and ministries where it sure sounds like all they want is my money. There was this billboard of a church that was very prominent as we were driving through Missouri on the way down. And it just looked funky. Didn't think too much about it. Come back the second time through Missouri, I saw it. And I thought, I'm going to look this church up. Look this church up, and it's like, oh, Lord, this is, this is why people don't go to church. This is what they think Christianity is. And I see where Paul says, I've coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Yeah, I'm going to make this abundantly clear, abundantly clear. I want you guys to give, and I want you guys to give abundantly. I'm going to make sure you know I don't want any of your money. And the church doesn't want any of your money. We just want to see that money be used to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not like if you give, I get more. It doesn't work that way. I tried. It doesn't. I, it just doesn't. I'm kidding. If it's your first time here, that was a joke. Shouldn't have said that. Not spirit-led. Sorry. But I have coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel. Verse 34, we work. Verse 35, we labor. It's more blessed to give than to receive. I just want to share this with you. Something, Lord's really been laying on Dona Maya's heart here for a while. Um, you know, every year at the end of the year, the church does year in things. You know, we figure out finances, et cetera. You know, Rose gave a nice testimony this morning about, about giving. And what happens at the end of the year is we usually have this board meeting and I tell the board, I say, listen, you know, Dawn and I have all of our needs met. We don't need anything. God has blessed us upon what we can ever imagine. The church has been a blessing to us. The Lord has blessed us. We don't need a raise. We don't need anything. So the last few years, saying we don't need a raise or anything and the church, didn't do a raise. This year they came back and said, well, we heard you say, we know you said you don't need a raise. We're still giving you a raise anyway. Very nice of them. So Dawn and I in January had this raise. And we stopped and said, okay, what are we going to do with this? We don't need it. And all of our bills are met. I mean, everything's taken care of. We're blessed. If we just have extra money, what are we going to do? Just go buy something extra? We don't want to do that. So we decided that we're going to just take that raise that we got every month and just give it away. So we get the beginning of the month, we, that extra money, we just stop and say, okay, Lord, who can we bless? Because verse 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So every month we pray over it, and we just give that money away. Well, this is what's been happening. The more we give away, guess what happens? We keep getting more money. And I'm not making a joke, and I don't want you to think this is going to turn into some prosperity gospel. No, I'm just straightforward telling you the Bible. 1 Corinthians 9 says that when you have a heart of giving and you give more away, guess what the Lord does? He gives you more so you can give more away. And so what happens is, so we keep giving money away, and God keeps giving us more money. It's just, and I'm not making this up. And so we just keep saying, okay, we got to keep giving more away because it just keeps coming in. And so then we get more money coming in, and we just keep giving more out. And this is just what's been happening the last few months. More money comes in. We just keep giving more away. All of our needs are met. We don't need anything. So what's just more blessed to give than to receive? And so more just keeps coming in. 1 Corinthians 9. I just That's what the Lord does. Now the problem is, if you treat God like some type of investment banker, okay, Lord, I'm giving an extra 20. That means next week I should get 50. No, you're misunderstanding. Please remember what it says in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.28 says, part of the reason you work is to give money away. See, a lot of times when we think of work, we think of, I have earned this. I deserve this promotion. I deserve this raise. And so now I have more disposable income. What should I do with it? Well, we could always wanted this. We always wanted to have this. If they're in need, then let it be in need. But if you have more money coming in, maybe the Lord is saying, hey, try me. Give it away. See what happens. I'm telling you, verse 35 is true. It is more blessed to give than to receive. God will always meet your needs. He will take care of you. He has blessed you. And so some of you may be saying, okay, well, what happens now when a need arises and all that money could have been stored up? My God is faithful. If he brought water out of a rock, he'll provide the need right then. He gave quail. He gave manna. And I firmly believe that if something breaks down or something blows up, and we're like, okay, if we wouldn't have given it all away, no, at that moment the Lord will be faithful and take care of it because that's what the Lord does. Is that a difficult concept? It is a difficult concept because we have this tendency to think of ours, mine, and really we look at needs and they're not needs, they're really wants. When we were down in Mexico, you can't imagine the living conditions. Some of you have been down there, you know what I'm talking about. So you spend the first day talking to Bree, the gal down there saying, "What do these people need?" What can we do? And Bree looks at you and says, they need Jesus. They don't need anything else. They need Jesus. They need to be saved. Well, I know they need to be saved. Okay, but what can we do to raise their standard? Why are we raising their standard of living? They need Jesus Christ. And that's something that really hit us. We think of all this type of stuff, it's like, wow, Lord, what people really need is Jesus Christ. And and we look at this, I call it white-collar evangelism or guilty evangelism, that I gave you something so I feel better about myself. And what happened was, there's a pastor down there We went and looked at a church plant together, and he's the Spanish pastor up in Anaheim. And I said, how did you get involved doing a Bible study down here? And I'll make this story real quick. He goes, my first missions trip to Mexico, we loaded up our church van, came down, parked at the street, and handed out rice, flour, and oil. It was done in about 20 minutes because we were swarmed, and then we went back to the States, and we all patted ourselves on the back. And he goes, I got home, and I thought, I didn't even share the gospel. I gave people food, good. Gave them oil, good. Gave them rice, good. I didn't give him Jesus. He goes. I decided that next week I was going back down, and he started a Bible study. And six years later, there's a church plant because so he said, "What these people need is Jesus." And what Brie kept telling us, she goes, "Listen, yeah, feed them. We're going to definitely do that. But what they need is Jesus Christ." And so we need to remember the main focus is the gospel and being saved. Careful, remember that old hymn: "The things of this world will grow strangely dim." The deeper and longer we go with Christ, the more we realize. Why am I holding on to things here? It is more blessed to give than to receive. How does he finish it? Verse 36, they kneel down, they pray, they weep, they kiss. I don't know about the kiss part, but let's do the kneel down and prayer and the weeping. I'm cool with that. There's an emotion there. Last point I'm going to say. Um, and, I, and I can't think of a better word. And you know sometimes in Christianity, this is not a good word to share. We, we could do a better job as the body of Christ, of, of being more emotional. You know, we, we put up barriers and walls. we try trying to make it look like we have it all figured out. And I look at this verse, and I see kneeling, praying, weeping. One of the things that I experienced down there, and a lot of you have asked, how the trip go? And I'll say the same thing. God taught us a lot, and I'm still chewing on what it means and represents But there was a church right beside the church we stayed at, so I'd go over to those church services and stay at this church, go to those church services. And one thing I realized down there, and part of it's cultural, they sure pray a whole lot differently. And I was at a prayer service, and they would do worship for a while, and then they would announce if you have anything to pray for, you could come up to the front of the altar, kneel down, and pray. First couple times I went, you know, went to the worship, and it was a real blessing. And then I really felt like the Lord said, time to go up there and pray. So I went up there and got on my knees and was just giving the Lord a lot. I mean, just And, and down there, everybody prays at the same time. And so you're just praying out loud and you're giving it to the Lord. So all of a sudden while I'm praying at this church that I don't know, I met the pastor, we talked a little bit, and just giving it all over to the Lord, this lady comes up to me, never met her, she lays hands on me. Now I've had people lay hands on me before, you lay hands on them. She lays hands like this. It's a lay a hand on, I mean like... <laughs> And she's laying hands on me, and she starts praying over me, and she's praying for peace. She's praying for my problems. She's never met me. I've never met her, and she just comes over and she's laying hands on me. Prays. So I, I we get done praying. I I give up. I give her a hug. I tell her thank you. God bless you. And I don't even know if I would be able to recognize her again if I see her. But you know what? It was the body of Christ, and it was a woman that felt led, and she came over and she listened to the Spirit. And there was that gooey little connection for a brief moment where a sister in Christ that I'll probably never see again said, I need to pray for this person. And I just want to encourage you, when I look at verses 36 and 37 and I see the kneeling and the praying and the weeping and the, I said, we'll talk about the kissing later, but I see this connection. Maybe it's time for us to also realize if I really want to live the life, it's building a deeper relationship not having as many walls, being the body of Christ, realizing it's all about Jesus, letting go of things, and saying, well, Lord, I want to live it. I want to live it. Pray about that. Pray about all of it. What does it look like for us as a church, for us as individuals? And then let's go out and live it, and always say and do. Worship team, if going to come forward here, letting you out a little late, they're going to do a special, and it's a real blessing. You'll be blessed by this. Remember, next week after the 830, 830-